Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. You are listening to the greatest podcast in the history of the universe. Thank you very much for that. We are going to uncover some of the science secrets lurking around the universe. This week, we'll find out why not all fruits and vegetables are good for you. Uh, Also, you can hear whether humans will ever become venomous and why we haven't so far. Uh, That's coming up with a special guest. And we'll talk about a high school that has done very well in a science prize. That's on the way a little later. Uh, Before then, let's catch up with some of our alien friends who are trying to get back home. This is NNG. NNG's Meter Motivator. Hey, guys, you know all about energy, right? No, we are energy. Possessors of all the knowledgeable in the nebula, no less. So what's up? Well, I understand where our energy comes from and that we're using more than ever. If I'm going to be a meter motivator, I need to know more about how a smart meter can help. Ah, great question. It's all to do with preventing waste. You sound like my gran. She hates wasting anything, least of all energy. Always telling me to put a jumper on instead of turning up the heating. Are you sure she's not one of the think wranglers from Cerebra 9? She sounds awfully clever for an earthling. That might explain a lot. So what's that got to do with a smart meter? Smart meters can help you see how much energy you're using, how and when. Which is good when you use as much as humanoids do. From the splishy washy machine to your play tablets, your homes use more energy than ever before. But you Earthlings don't have ultimate galactic infinite power drives like we do, so it's important to be in control. Smart meters help you take control and to only use the energy you need. But how? They're just a little panel thing on the wall. Doesn't look very helpful to me. You might be surprised at what you find out. Imagine, in the middle of the night, the house is quiet. You might think you're saving energy. But no, electrical appliances on standby still use energy. Smart meters can help you track your usage to find out things like that, to show you where you could make changes. Like switching off all the gadgets. I get it. Like why we keep a food journal at school. It helped us to see where we can make better choices. And the information smart meters capture will help power companies to get the energy to where it's needed and when. This could mean cheaper electricity at certain times of the day when demand is lower. Very smart. Almost as smart as your old grandperson. And meter motivators like you are pretty smart too. Almost as smart as a think wrangler. Using less energy is great for the environment and can help prevent waste. And knowing where you are wasting energy means you could start using that energy for something else. Like more hot baths. Gren loves the bath. She says it's how she recharges her batteries. Watch out. Looks like we're going to fuse, G. Time for us to pop. Here it comes. Whoopee. I love a bit of fusion. See you, kid. Bye, energy, and thanks. Here it comes. 
Ambient Meter Motivator with N and G. With support from Smart Energy GB. Find out more at funkyslive.com slash energy. Question time then. Uh, it's one of my favourite parts of the show where you send your science questions to me as a review on Apple Podcasts. Then I do all the digging to find out the answers for you. Uh, this is from Zara, who wants to know, if you get really deep down into the ocean, does the temperature of the water get warmer because you're closer to the Earth's core? That would make sense, Zara. That would be the easy answer. The, the real answer is no. No, it doesn't. It gets even colder. And there are a few reasons why. Now, the water that's in the ocean is still quite far away from the Earth's core. Ocean water is mainly heated by sunlight as well. And that only heats up right at the top of the sea. The warmth has trouble filtering down to the lower parts. Also, the water that's at the bottom of the ocean, it's been there for ages. There's not a lot of tide or waves or currents down there. It stays down there and it keeps cold. And remember, um, warm things rise. We speak about this on the Science Weekly all the time. Uh, Hotter things are less dense. They are lighter than cold stuff, which is heavy, which sinks. So the cold water sinks to the bottom, which means that as you get deeper down into the ocean... It gets a little bit chilly. Thank you for the question, Zara. This one is from William, who's in Hull, who wants to know, uh, how does the Earth tilt and spin around the sun at the same time? It's a strange one to answer, Will. Yeah, it just does. But I'll try and break it down a little bit. Uh, The Earth has a tilt of 23.5 degrees. That's where it spins on its axis. Now, scientists think that it's got this tilt because when the Earth was forming, it had about 10 collisions with other bits of rock that were forming at the same time. And this knocked its its centre of balance, I guess. It knocked its axis off to 23.5 degrees. Now, the Earth is spinning because when it was being made, all of the gases that make the Earth swirled round and round and round each other a bit like water going down a plug hole and it got faster and faster and faster and when something spins in space there's very little to stop it slowing down so it'll just spin on forever Um, it's a hard one to answer it kind of tilts because it was hit a lot and it spins just because it does thank you will lastly this is from puppy star 24 who wants to know could humans survive on earth without any animals Now, we know from vegetarians and vegans that you don't have to eat animals to survive. But I don't think we can survive without them completely because they create the nature that's around us. Birds spread seeds, which plant trees, and trees give us oxygen so that we can live. Worms and insects help the soil, which takes a lot of carbon out of the air, which helps us breathe as well. And the bees, uh, they help make and pollinate the fruit and the veg that we eat so without them we really couldn't eat a lot so we do need animals to survive on planet earth thank you for the question also hello to archie who i know is listening in because your uncle nathan sent me a video of you doing it thank you very much for following the show mate now if you've got a science question that you want answered next week on the show uh, you need to leave it as a review for me over on apple podcasts it's the fun kids science weekly this week we're going to answer a big question Can human beings ever become venomous? 
And if they can, why haven't we so far? Uh, to help with this, Agnish Barua is a doctoral student in evolutionary genetics. Uh, he's at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology, which is in Japan, and he's on the show from Japan. Uh, he's written a study about it, and he's going to tell us more. Hello, Agnish. Hey there. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, I, I'd love to start by just knowing why some creatures are venomous, Agnish. So why have some animals evolved this ability to, to be toxic and, and others haven't? So the ancestors of some modern-day venomous animals, they found that they were better at capturing their prey if they injected their prey with some sort of concoction. And this strategy allowed them to be really successful. And so through millions of years, they sort of experimented with different recipes of this concoction and eventually became um, really potent venomous animals that we have now. You say experiment, Agnish, but they're not thinking this through, are they? This is just the randomness of evolution and, and the ones that we have right. today happen to be the best part of it. Right, exactly. So the animals themselves didn't have that much of a direct role in the experimentation. Rather, evolution and nature did the experiment for them. What always amazes me is that some of the most venomous creatures look amazing. They're so brightly coloured. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Why is that, Agnish? Why are they brightly coloured? So making venoms or poisons, for that matter, requires a lot of energy. So you can think of it as being something sort of like a precious resource. So because they'd really only want to use this resource when absolutely necessary, they develop these other characteristics that they can use to signal to predators saying that, hey, if you eat me, you will regret it. Wow. So this way, the animal can sort of save the venom and use it only for the really most important things like feeding. So, so it's a warning sign. Um, now, humans, though, we've made it to the top of the tree, really. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're kind of an apex predator, uh, and, but we, we aren't venomous so far. How have we managed to do that so far? Yeah, so that's because we've developed something that's far more useful than venom. That's intelligence. Our heightened intelligence allowed us to change our surroundings to suit our needs. And that made us much more successful than any other animal. And there's this study that you have co-authored to try and find out if humans ever became venomous. Uh -huh. uh, it, it, could we become uh -huh. venomous? Um, how did you research this, Agnish? What were you looking at to, to see whether we could become venomous? So the idea actually started to started about trying to understand how venomous animals sort of develop the venom on their own. And most of the studies actually just look at the venom genes themselves. But we realized that, you know, venom genes evolve really fast and they have a lot of diversity. So looking at the venom genes perhaps is not the right way. So we looked at genes that um, work together with the venom genes and those genes are much more common across a bunch of different animals. So we looked at those genes and, see, and saw how they are, are produced in different animals. And we found that... Um, the same set of genes that are involved in making venom in snakes are also working in a very similar way in mammals like mice and humans. So that's essentially the direction we took. So we do have these genes. Right, we do have these genes. You can think of it as like a molecular foundation that we share with venomous animals like snakes. So what would need to happen 
for humans to tap into that gene? We've been getting a lot of questions like this, but I, it's very unlikely that humans will ever become venomous because think about it this way, wild animals, they need to go into the wild and hunt their food. And some of these animals have developed venom as a weapon to help them with their hunting. But if we need food, we just go to the supermarket. So we essentially don't have the same kind of compulsion to make venom. And because of that, we never will. Well, but what would to happen, Agnish, if, uh, I don't know, uh, there's a huge apocalypse, like almost the world ends and, and humans are left without any supermarkets. We can't just deliver food <laughs> straight away. What if it's us in the jungle with creatures? Is there a chance that over time we could develop this skill? I think the key factor here is over time because evolution, as powerful as it might be, is a really slow process. So we both are talking about it now, but perhaps in like, I don't know, a million years or so, the descendants of modern humans will probably look really weird, very different from um, current modern humans right now. So maybe if, if having a lot of different sub, um, secretions in their saliva turned out to be useful, hey, perhaps future humans can become venomous. What always amazes me about venomous creatures, Agnish, is that they, the method that they use for their venom can be completely different. You know, snakes bite. I was looking about the duck-billed platypus who's got a venomous spur on its ankle. Um, why do some creatures use different methods to poison their prey? That's really, I think, a testament to evolution and how if you have like um, a similar problem that evolution faces, it'll find sort of similar ways to confront that problems. But everyone doesn't start out from the same starting point. For example, the ancestors of, of, of reptiles, they probably had, had better teeth and a secretory system that already made some sort of secretion. So they decided to take the path of biting their prey. Whereas um, scorpions, for example, perhaps their ancestors had like some sort of secretion being produced near the tail. So they decided to take the, the stinger path. So it's really about how you started and how evolution eventually shaped you. Uh, now, lastly, just back to humans mm -hmm. evolving, as you've said, there's not really much need for us to evolve that much because we're, we're the top of the tree. We've got intelligence. We've got supermarkets down the road. We can get by just fine. Um, how much are we still slightly evolving as we go on, Agnish? You know, we've become taller uh, as a species. Maybe we don't use as many organs that we once did. How much might humans, say, in 100,000 years be different from humans today? I'm not really sure if that has a correct answer or rather even a single answer. Um, for now, yeah, you're right that humans have become taller and perhaps future more future humans will have a higher intelligence because of all the collective knowledge we've gained. There are some reports that say because of our increasing height, future humans might have longer necks and longer limbs. 
but it's un it's it's really unsure to accurately say how future humans will turn out because it's literally fortune telling and if anything we've learned from science fortune telling doesn't really work that well <laughs> okay well, i think you did that very well agnish listen thank you so much for oh, coming cheers. on the show <laughs> oh brilliant this was fun thanks guys for this week's Dangerous Dan, we're looking at the Pangium edgel fruit, which goes by another name. A name that I think you might like a lot more. It's also called the football fruit. Now, it's found in Southeast Asia. And you really better hope that the chef who makes this knows how to cook it properly. It's a large brown fruit. Looks a little bit like an old football. The seeds inside, though, they are filled with poison. Stuffed full of something called hydrocyanic acid. This toxic, if you eat it, it can cause sleepiness, delirium, and even death. But the thing is, with these seeds, the poison, it's used in so much. It's used for rat poison. They can be made into a cooking oil. It can treat boils and kill parasites and even preserve fish. All coming from the football fruit. In Southeast Asia, it's deadly and it's easy to remember because of the name. That football fruit, it can give you a right kick in. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. It's time to look into the sky now uh, with Marina Ventura, our weather guru. Marina Ventura's Climate Explorers. Hi there, Marina Ventura here. I love finding out about the natural world and that includes the Earth's climate. We know that weather can change from one day to the next, but climates can change too over the time span of years, centuries or even longer. So I'm on a mission to fill MapUp with the latest climate information with the help of some awesome climate explorers. Come on then, let's go. There's a lot more to the ground under our feet than the pavement. That's right. There's lots of stuff under the streets, from pipes carrying water and waste to cables delivering energy and the internet to our schools and homes. There might also be an underground railway under your feet. But as well as man-made objects, you might also find things that can tell us what the planet used to be like. Here's a clue. Fossils, such as woolly mammoth or saber-toothed cat remains, are incredibly valuable. They don't just tell us what creatures on Earth were like thousands of years ago. They can also give us clues about the environment, too. And even the soil itself is packed full of clues about past climate changes. Let's talk to a climate explorer who's getting to the bottom of some climate conundrums. Hi, I'm Matt. By looking at old rocks and soils, we can learn about what the world used to be like. I'm especially interested in Ice Age climate and how glaciers shape and change the landscape during a cold period of the natural climate cycle. Did you know England was once buried under miles of ice? We can learn about this by looking at the landscape that all this ice carved out and the soils they left behind, like muds that formed in the bottom of lakes that were created when glaciers melted at the end of the last ice age. As well as digging holes to find rock and soil samples, I use special equipment that can see through the ground and create images of what's buried deep beneath my feet. Sounds like a lot of fun. But how do you see through the ground? Sounds like you'd need some X-ray specs or lasers for that. 
Well, not quite. We use something called a ground-penetrating radar. It sends pulses into the Earth. The way those pulses behave can tell us what's down there. That would be a really great app for you, Mappy. <laughs> the weather conditions over time can cause rocks and soil to behave in different ways. By studying really old samples, we can understand some of the natural ways that climate has changed over millions of years. This helps in two ways. It helps us to learn what to expect when the Earth changes naturally and how fast this happens, and also helps us see which changes are natural and which are new, caused by modern-day effects such as pollution and deforestation. I've travelled to lots of exciting places. I've scanned sand dunes in Morocco, explored volcanoes in Spain, although they weren't erupting at the time, and also have dug up sea sediment in the English Channel. Really valuable work. Thanks, Matt. Learning from our Earth's history makes a lot of sense. After all, the planet has been around for four and a half billion years, and humans have only been a tiny fraction of that. And climate explorers like Matt can help share that knowledge. Talking of sharing knowledge, ready for upload, Mappy? Load me up. Next time, we'll be taking a walk in the woods, finding out more about how studying the forests can help us learn more about the Earth's climate. See you soon. Marina Ventura's Climate Explorers, supported by the Natural Environment Research Council, the science of the natural world. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash marina. Let's do this week's science in the news. China has released the first pictures taken by its Zhurong rover on Mars. It shows the landscape ahead of the robot, which is on the landing platform. The backwards shot shows the rover's solar panels. It looks muddy, reddish and dark. Also, SpaceX's Starship rocket has made a vertical landing. Uh, the four other tests that SpaceX rockets have done, they've all ran into trouble. They've been exploding when they've touched down. But in the latest prototype, SN15, it flew into the atmosphere and touched down straight and safely again. And finally, a school from the UK has done very well in a huge prize that uses STEM ideas to help the world make technology for good purposes. Uh, here they are now, actually, with a little bit more about what they've done. Hi, I'm Kai. Hi, I'm Lukash. Hi, I'm Leighton. Hi, I'm Carly. Hi, I'm, I am Sophie, and we are all from Blaken High School in Chester. The Amazon Longitude Explorer Prize is a competition for young people to develop tech solutions to help solve the world's biggest issues. Using the skills we learn in science, technology, maths lessons and the school STEM club. We have created Around the Crowd. It is an app that tracks how crowded local areas are so that people can decide whether they want to visit or not. We came up with the idea in a brainstorm after exploring different problems people face and sharing different ideas. Around the Crowd is a smartphone app that works by measuring how busy a local area or business is and uses the data to recommend quiet times to visit them instead. This helps people to avoid big crowds. You can find out more about Around the Crowd and all of the finalists in the Amazon Longitude Explorer Prize at longitudeexplorer.challenges.org. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you've got something science-y that you want answered on this science show, you can leave it for me as a review. If you're on Apple Podcasts, find us there. There's a little comment box where you leave your review. Stick on the question, leave us five stars, let me know your name, and I will see it, and I'll do my best job at answering it next week. Uh, while you're on Apple Podcasts, 
It's one of the best ways that you can hear so many podcasts that we do here at Fun Kids. You've got them there. You've got them really wherever you get your shows. Google, Spotify, it's on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen to us all around the country on your DAB digital radio, on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. I'll see you next week. Bye. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!